but yeah, I'm, I'm humbled to be here, and I've given my testimony a couple of times, probably now two or three times, but now I have 40 minutes to talk about kind of the full gamut of what's happened to me and how God's been working powerfully in my life, but I don't want to take that entire time to just maybe focus on that, but um, I want to talk about prayer a little bit too and my journey in prayer over the past couple of years and what that's meant to me, but um, we'll just get started. I mean, I, I grew up in a Catholic home, so I was raised cradle Catholic. My mother's Italian, so very, not superstitious, but just very traditional Catholic upbringing. And um, I hated going to church so much. As a kid, I hated everything about it. It was, it was boring to me. I would look for every excuse I possibly could to not go to church on Sunday. I would go to the gym, you know, hop into the shower when they were pulling out of the driveway in their car so that I wouldn't physically be able to go to church. And that was my strategy. So I had a number of strategies. And the story I like to tell people is that my mother would get mad at me because I'd wear flip-flops to church on my feet, almost as a lackadaisical way to insult her and to insult going to church in general. And she said, you know, put some, put some shoes on your feet. We're going to church. We're going to see God. And I would say, well, Jesus wore sandals, so so can I. So I, I always had something to say. I didn't really think, I didn't think God was real, to be quite candid with you. I didn't think God existed. I didn't think God cared about me in any way. And in college, that didn't help. A lot of the universities are very secular. I had a very secular roommate who was a philosophy major of all things. It's almost actually an intellectual paradox to be an intellectual atheist, but somehow they pull it off and all these philosophers at these universities promote atheism. And I remember staying up till two, three in the morning with my roommate talking to me about Nietzsche and how God didn't exist and everything. And I'm sitting there and I'm nodding my head like, yeah, you know, this makes a lot of logical sense. Like, time to let go of the fairy tales and kind of enter into the real world and embrace reality in, in its wretchedness and its misery. Kind of a, almost like a perverted disposition of heroism, if, if you could kind of imagine that. Like, yep, we just got to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps because God isn't going to help us do anything. Kind of, kind of attitude. So, I didn't have a faith life really at all in any way prior to my conversion. I didn't believe in God and what really kind of flipped for me, it was March of 2017. I was home from graduate school for a couple of weeks in the winter. And the only place that I could go to get quiet from the constant arguing at my house, from my mother, from my father, from everyone, was the local church to which I had the passcode because my mother would go pray there in solitude for hours a day. So the priest had given her the passcode to get into the church. And so I remember sitting there with my arms folded across my chest and a smug grin on my face, looking at an image of the crucifixion on a glass-stained window and kind of half smiling to myself saying, this isn't real. And saying, and I, I made God a wager. I said, God, you're not real. And if you are, let's see you do something about X, Y, or Z. Thinking, I have nothing to lose. Like, thinking clearly, clearly, if there's anything that's definitely wrong, with 100% certainty in my mind, it was the Catholic Church. I was just like, just look at the scandal. Just look at the culture of the people in the church. Just look at anything. You can obviously see that this is wrong. And God has completely and radically humbled me to show me that the fullness of divine revelation from God is in the Catholic Church. So I, it's, it's literally something I couldn't have been more wrong about. And God was probably there smiling, looking at me like, okay, I'll take you up on that bet. And so... About two months later, God works in symbolism. So God has kind of a narrative structure to reality, and he tends to work symbolically to communicate things to us that are essential. So it was March 17th of 2017. I was going to Las Vegas to Sin City with my girlfriend at the time, and we were going to leave that morning. And I'll never forget it. I woke up with what felt like a flu, like a full-body flu, but I thought, oh, something, something's wrong. This just doesn't... It doesn't feel right. It feels like my immune system doesn't work. It feels like something is stuck in my body. And so what ended up happening was for three years while living in Chicago, I had unknowingly, I didn't know what it was, what's called demonic oppression. So if you've, if you've met people who've had demonic spiritual problems, these things are real and they can affect your health in a real way that is absolutely radically devastating. And so I remember I, I went through probably the... One of the darker periods of my life, you know, living alone, dealing with this chronic illness where my immune system stopped working. So I had fungus growing on my hands, on, in my mouth, on my feet. 
and I'm still working through all of this, even though I have no business like getting out of bed in radical pain, extreme fatigue, all these things are happening to me and doctors are going, well, it looks like you're dying, but we can't really do anything to help you. And I'm thinking, great. I'll just be back next week with my insurance card, you know, <laughs> get a, get another free appointment to be told there's actually nothing you can do to help me. But the thing is, God gives us sometimes crosses of transformation and suffering so that we turn to him when we actually cannot literally solve the problem ourselves. And the problem that we can't solve is sin. We can't solve our sin. We can't solve our own salvation. God has to give it to us freely out of his generosity. So I'll never forget it. I was on my bed at the winter of 2019, 2020, just completely at the end of my rope. And I'm considering at this point, maybe taking my own life. Because I'm like, okay, there's absolutely no way I can continue to live the way that I've been living. And I gave God an ultimatum. <laughs> Has anyone ever done this before? You ever give God like an ultimatum? Like, you do this, you've done it? So God loves those when you don't have faith because it's a way for him to give you faith that he's real and he's active and he's living. And I said, God, I said, if you're real, right? If you're real and if you're hearing me and if you care at all and if you heal me, I'll do whatever you want me to do. But you need to do it. So he's probably up in heaven going, okay, okay, I see what we're doing now. I see that you're leading everything, so we'll just follow your lead, probably half sarcastically. So I took a wheelchair to kind of paint the picture for you. I took a wheelchair in the airport to get here in the winter of 2020 because I couldn't physically walk. So if you know people with fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, kind of full body autoimmunity, somatic types of problems, PTSD, things like that that can actually affect your physical health, that's very similar to what I was dealing with. So I, I came out here unable to walk, unable to function. And right away, I started getting all these dreams, right away, all these dreams about sins that I didn't remember committing. And I remember waking up thinking, did I do that? And I was like, was that me? I'm like, because sometimes demons can even block your memories of stuff from your past, prevent you from confessing your sins to God of things you've done or people you've hurt. And I, this kept happening for a couple of days, and I thought, oh, that's weird, that's strange. And it was incredible because within about a week of being in California, I was fully relatively fully healed of everything that I was dealing with. I was able to walk. I was able to exercise again. I was able to play sports. And I can remember sitting in a Starbucks, clutching the chair, almost like it was about to take off, like a, like you're on a rocket ship, thinking, oh my gosh, I've won the lottery. Or alternatively, God is real. I don't know. But either way, I feel like I'm going to mess this up. You know, th this is my thinking because I know that I'm too immature to maintain and control whatever what's been given to me because in the end, God is the one who heals us and God is the one who's in control. And when we try to control things, that never works out in our favor. So what happened when I moved out here and when God heals people spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, and psychologically, what will happen is the devil will try to come in and will try to convince you you're not healed, God's not real, God doesn't love you, look to all these temptations of sin, so right away, all these things that only in retrospect I see clearly started to happen to me, where there was this person, has anyone heard of the New Age spirituality? You guys have heard of that? So it's basically the occult. So, I mean, we can call a spade a spade of what it is. But this person kind of from the New Age spirituality, also involved in atheism, kind of came into my life very, very quickly and became a counterfeit father figure to me. And it was just, it was just all these lies that God wasn't real, and that you had healed yourself and that and that you know that you know the, you're getting a new chance to exist in the universe right and you know this person was you know dealing with demonic problems themselves so i i pray for this person but it was a huge negative influence on my life so i spent a several several months really kind of violently wrestling because when i came out here i was pursuing a medical treatment so i was doing something to medically treat outside of fda approved things for what, what my condition was, which is basically chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia. So what I was doing wasn't approved for the condition I had. So I was kind of pursuing very aggressive avenues of trying to get well. And God saw that and he worked. And what happens is God is so humble that he'll work through secondary causes and remain anonymous. That's how, that's how humble he is. He'll heal people anonymously because if they don't directly call out to him, he knows that they're not asking him for healing but he's working through the means that they are pursuing.
So God had healed me, and I remember walking around, you know, in Irvine, kind of relatively close to here, thinking every day, did God heal me? Is God is God real? Did I, did, did I figure it out? Did I, did I find the answers to all my problems, and did I solve everything with my health, and am I kind of like transcending somehow my existence? When this person came into my life and started pushing on me psychedelic drugs and different things like that, and I, I was looking for answers, you know, and there are people who are like spiritually seeking answers genuinely in these spaces, the new age and different things like that. But it's a perversion because it's a distortion of the truth. So the devil tried to start to convince me. I started experimenting with psychedelics and started eventually coming to the conclusion that, you know, I had healed myself. And so the only the only group of people I can actually honestly relate to, even though it had nothing to do with what I went through are people who have serious addictions, like drug addicts, in their, in their recovery. Because their recovery, honestly, sometimes looks like a roller coaster. It's like they go up, and then they just plummet down. And then they go up again, and they just plummet down. And the thing is, God writes straight with crooked lines, and he's working with our free will. That's, like, that's why these things happen. So every time an addict takes a fall, or something happens to them, and they fall down, God can actually use that for a greater good. And when I look back at everything that happened to me, I see that very clearly in retrospect that every time I fell or I made a mistake or I didn't turn to God, that God was actually blessing that and using that in a way that I could actually speak to you right now about all the mistakes that I made along the way. And so what happened was I started experimenting with psychedelics. I got a girlfriend right away. And really, the you know, I always tell people, I'm like, oh, gosh, Lord, I wish I had hit rock bottom. I really wish I had hit it when I was so sick for three years and you had healed me and it was like being reborn. I really wish that was the time that I had, but it, it, took, it took an even deeper kind of suffering for God to speak to me. So the major thing that brought about my conversion is I had a drug overdose two years ago and I was in the hospital for six weeks in a coma with any, everything you can imagine. Liver failure, kidney failure, brain hemorrhage, broken bones, Every, like everything, sepsis. And when, when I'd woken up from it, it was so bad that the doctors were looking at me almost puzzled. They're like, how did you, how did you survive this? They're like, you, have, you had sepsis, you had, your brain is not working, it's bleeding, you shouldn't be able to talk right now. They're like, what, what did you, what, what's your secret? And I looked at them, you know, I was actually missing a few teeth. <laughs> I looked at them and in a half lisp, I said, I'm pretty tough. You know, that was my answer because I didn't understand that God once again had saved my life. But thanks be to God, after a few months after that happened, I came to the conclusion that it was God who had healed me. It was God who had basically prevented me from going to hell. Like all these things that you hear about with near-death experiences are very real. So I'll share a little bit with you about what that near-death experience was because I actually have never shared it with anyone before. I've, I've never even actually thought to write about it or think about it because I know I didn't want to quote unquote give power to the enemy. But the reality is, is that all we're doing when people testify to the truth is we're actually exposing the tactics and the lies of the enemy because that's all it is. The devil is a father of lies and everything that happened to me, I saw very clearly that my decisions in my life were, were a result of believing lies not in here but in my heart. And people say that but wow, I mean, the most difficult journey in the world you could ever make is from here to here, from your head to your heart, to believe the truth of the gospel, to believe the truth of Jesus, that God loves you in that way. Not just saying it like, oh, yeah, I know God loves me. To really believe it, though, and to act it out. But I, rem you know, I remember for six weeks, I didn't know what was happening at the time. I didn't understand it. But to put it very bluntly and simply, like demons and all this stuff we hear about in our Catholic faith are very real. And it's very literal. It's actually almost comical how literal it is. Like they're spiritual beings, they're beings just like you or me. They exist, they have names, they have sin characteristics. It's kind of comical how it's so simple that a five-year-old could understand our faith. A five-year-old could understand there's God and the devil and they're the devil's minions and they work for him and they try to drag souls to hell. It's very simple. But I remember, I'll never forget it. The vision I had started, I was in a cage in just an absolutely freezing cold environment. And it and God works symbolically. So while I was in the hospital, I was on a bed of ice physically because my body temperature was so elevated they need to they needed they needed to physically keep it down or I would die. So 
that kind of half explained it. But if anyone, if you, has anyone here ever heard of like a near-death experience? Has anyone ever talked to you about that? The only way I can describe it is it's so, if you've ever been to like an IMAX 3D theater where it's hyper resolution and almost like the images are jumping off of the screen at you where you feel like it's more real than real, it feels like hyper reality. That's what this experience felt like for six weeks and it, I thought it was 30 years. I, I remember waking up in that hospital going, whoa, how old am I? Who am I? Like, this isn't, I don't even know whose body I'm in right now. This is insane because it felt like such a long period of time. But I'll never forget it. It started, I was in this cage because the devil takes people prisoner, right? He's a counterfeit father. He's not a real father. He, he wants to use and abuse you to achieve his ends, to drag people to his misery. Misery loves company. So I'm in this cage in this freezing cold environment. That's how it all starts. And I remember I knew I was in a hospital room. And there, were there was a demon right inside that hospital room screaming at me all this stuff from the New Age stuff that I was involved in. That perception was reality and that I could create my own reality if I just believed hard enough that none of this was real and that I had the power to create reality and I was just being weak. And I'm there in my hospital bed with cast on my arms thinking, oh, I've just got to... I've just got to believe harder. I've just got to believe. I've just got to believe all this away. So that lasted for a period of time. Lasted for a period of time. But my family physically came to the hospital where I was. My mother, my father, and I think some other people. And when they did that, in the vision I was having, I remember the demons couldn't come in the room physically that I was in. They had to be outside of it because God says, "Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them." And my mother was praying for me fervently the whole time. She claims to not operate in the spiritual gifts. And I'm trying to tell her, like, Mom, you get these words all the time. Like, God tells you to, you know, she's flying in the airplane, and God told her, pray the chaplet of the precious blood for your son, devotion to the suffering of Jesus. And she starts praying it for four to five hours a day. So I'm in this vision, and she's praying for me constantly. And I remember I'm once again finally at the end of my rope, and I'm feeling myself physically and spiritually dying. I, I feel this sense of despair coming over that I'm going to go to hell in 10 seconds. But I feel this rush of wind, like the Holy Spirit hits me right in the face. like it, Almost like if you went out into a blizzard and you got hit in the face with a rush of wind. It almost, it almost knocked me backwards. It was like a physical punch. And God, and I remember God was just speaking to me and I started frantically looking in every corner of my brain, opening these doors of my brain, looking for anything that would be mildly redeeming about my life at this point. Because I'm, I'm doing drugs, I'm living in mortal sin, I'm living with my girlfriend, you know, I don't have the best relationship with my parents, we're not estranged, but I don't have the best relationship with my family at this point, so I'm not, you could say, you know, a golden boy Christian, right? I'm not operating in a holy lifestyle, so I'm just looking frantically for anything about my life. I'm like, no, nothing here, nothing here, nothing here, and finally, I remember, I lift up both my arms that felt very heavy, because they're both in casts. So it felt like I was lifting 10 pounds. I lifted them up to God and I said, I screamed, God, I love my parents and I care about my girlfriend. <laughs> that, was, that was the only thing that I really had to offer God at that point in time of my whole life. That was it. That was like the only thing. And, and I remember it was the sound of an airplane. If you're, you ever been on this? An airplane came in, a green mist came in that I now recognize as the Holy Spirit. I didn't know what it was. <sighs> transported me back to earth and I felt this deep peace come over me and I just woke up in that hospital room like a rocket I remember just shooting out of my hospital bed being like whoa who am I you know thinking am I 50 years old like how old am I what is my name and eventually gradually things started to come back come back come back and back but God worked a miracle not once not twice but numerous times for me to be here because embarrassingly due to the fact of my own arrogance of my intellect I wrestled even with that for a long period of time for several months after it happened was that real was God really real did my brain make it up and the doctors are trying to explain to me you had a brain hemorrhage your brain isn't wasn't working like there's there's really no way what you're describing could have actually happened based on the fact that your brain activity wasn't anything so I'm thinking okay this is this is puzzling and then I'm thinking you know the experience I had with God seems a lot like what St. Paul talks about, that God is love. And I thought, no, but that can't be right. Like, I'm like, I'm looking at the world. I'm like, that's wrong. Obviously. I'm thinking, that can't be right. 
Because what I didn't understand is that the world is miserable not because of God, but because of us. That's the reason why there's sin and wretchedness in the world. It's because of our decisions. It's not God's fault. But what finally got me, do any of you guys know Jordan Peterson? Have you heard of Jordan Peterson? Yeah. That's, he is a blessed man. He is an anointed man. He's actually He actually is a prophet, and he doesn't even know it. He probably should be a priest. But in any case, I was watching one of his videos. I had gone to church for the first time in 10 to 20 years. And I'm standing in the back of that church looking at the picture of Jesus. Like, the, like this, the ascension of Jesus. And I'm half puzzled, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, you know what? I'm at such a rock bottom. I'm like, Jesus, if you're real, I'm officially ready for business. I'm officially open. I'm open. I'm ready. I guess I'm ready to be wrong about everything I've ever thought or believed because I'm at such a rock bottom. But that's all God needs is that small window of humility to come in powerfully into your life to work through you. And the next day after I made that prayer, I didn't know I was praying, but that's what it is when you talk to God. It's a prayer. I went on YouTube, and it just happened to pop up on my feed, Jordan Peterson with Bishop Barron. And I never watch him with Bishop Barron. And I never watched Jordan Peterson, really. I mean, I had watched him before, but maybe once in a great while, and I thought, huh, that's interesting, click. And I'm working, by the way, at this point. I'm just taking a break from work at lunch or something. And... Jordan Peterson, in his almost like Kermit-like voice, goes, he's like, you know, I don't know what's more likely, that Jesus rose from the dead or that they made it all up. And for some reason, I had never heard someone explain it to me so simply that the fact of the matter is, is we either think that the 500 early disciples who went to their deaths for the faith, people don't die for a lie, did it because they were all on drugs, insane and crazy? or because Jesus actually rose from the dead and they were dying for something that really happened, a historical event. Kind of like this intersection of the narrative world and the literal world at one point in human history in the person of Jesus Christ and that this actually is a historical thing that actually happened. It's not just a myth that we believe so that we say, oh, but it's you know some high principle that we're living our lives by so that we might overcome. It's like, no, this actually is real. Like that, This is what he's saying. And I went home and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is real. And I just knew in an instant that this was it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know that it meant you take up your cross and you follow him every day for the rest of your life. But I knew that it was it. I knew that all the suffering that I had been through was worth it because Jesus Christ was real, because he had risen from the dead, that it meant something. And I'll never forget it. It was just like, Four straight hours of probably never crying for the past 15 years. Just a flood of tears. Just unbelievable pain. And um, you ever see Roger Federer win a tennis match? He's like, mm. you know, he raises his fist and he's like, and I'm just like in my room living with other people trying to be quiet so as to not scare them all away from the property. And I'm like, I found it. I and, I, and I'm just like, I can't believe it. But the truth of the matter is, is I didn't find anything is that God finally found me. And I was humble enough to accept the truth. But what happened from there is I, I know this sounds like I promised you there are positives I'm going to get to. I know this sounds like a Debbie Downer maybe at first with all the pain and suffering, but God uses it for a greater good. So what ha I went through a period of deliverance for a period of time for three to four months, which was very, very painful, very hard. But the thing that helped me the most was, has anyone here heard of John Ramirez? Is that name familiar to anyone here? No? So he was, he was a former satanic priest. So he's an evangelical Christian now. He had a conversion because God came to him and converted him. But he's, I had watched his videos years ago in college thinking, is this all made up? And I'm seeing him talk about demons and all this stuff. And I thought, oh, he's just selling a book. <laughs> this guy is just selling a book. I mean, this is all crazy. This is all Looney Tunes. Like, what are people concerned about this for? But I remember he came back into my life through YouTube again. God is so funny where I saw him and he said, you know, the key to deliverance is trust. And it's really that simple. You really have to trust God and you really have to continue to pray and lean in all the way. Because God is an all or nothing God. He says, you're huddy or cold or I spit you out of my mouth. He wants us all in or all out. So that was a very difficult period of time. But God blessed it in so many ways. I, I, hope to, I wanted to share with you a couple of things that happened during that period of time where God really blessed that period of time. The first thing I'll say is with the Eucharist, because I, 
I actually was kind of doubting the Eucharist. I was like, is this real? Is Jesus really present in the Eucharist? And my mother for so many years had told me, whenever you receive communion, receive it on your tongue, right? Kneeling, I think she was saying, but just receive it. on. Don't touch it. And I thought, oh, that's embarrassing. I don't want to do that. I don't want to embarrass myself in front of all these people whom I know. And then I thought one day, you know what? I believe this. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm going to stick out my tongue. I'm going to receive God because I believe that that's God. And, you know, here I am knowing nothing about the faith, really, having a conversion. And I go back to my seat, and I'm sitting down, and everything's normal, like when you receive communion. And I just notice, I'm like, wait a minute, my body, it's almost like when you turn a car on, it starts to vibrate, like, violently. Like, it's vibrating. My body starts to vibrate just violently shaking. And I feel heat coming over my body, and I start to cry. And I'm in the middle of church, surrounded by all these people. And I'm looking at them, and I'm like, do you guys believe that this is God? Because I, I'm like, this is like, this is real. Like, like God is really in the Eucharist and with confession. I mean, so many priests I had met, exorcist priests, different people who worked with me, they said the most powerful form of exorcism is confession because God forgives your sins when you come to him in honesty and earnestness and humility. And I remember going to confession with all of my baggage and all of my sins and having the most brutal headache you could possibly imagine almost to the point of being non-functional. Because <laughs> God was working, you know, St. Paul talks about a thorn in his side. God was kind of working to prune me of anxiety and different things at the time. So my, my headache was so bad, I almost literally couldn't drive. And I get there, and I start to confess to this Norbertine priest, Father Peregrine, some of you might know who he is. He's awesome. So he was my confessor, spiritual director for a period of time, and I start confessing my sins to him. And whew, my headache just goes away in an instant, like it, it miraculously. It just completely disappeared for the rest of the day. And I'm sitting there almost about to float out of my chair stunned that God is like, yes, I'm in the Eucharist. Yes, I'm in the confessional. All of your doubts I'm going to put away because I know that you're going to try to think about this and figure it out, and it's going to cause you a lot more problems than if I just tell you what's going on because that's more of a reflection of my character than it is of God's. But it was absolutely incredible. And the prayer that kind of changed my life was I was beginning to pray to be more in God's will. I said, I said, Lord, you know, people don't know, people don't know about this. I pray that you might use me to evangelize. <laughs> and that was exactly the prayer he wanted me to pray. So I'm, I'm driving home from St. Michael's Abbey. It must have been a year and a half, two years ago. And I hear this voice in my heart say, Go into the desert. And I go, What? I'm like, what, what does that even mean? That's such like an abstract, strange thing I thought for God to say. So I turn my car around and I start walking on Black Star Canyon, which is right whereby I live now at the Santiago Retreat Center. So I start walking and I meet this man I had met four weeks prior in the same exact spot on a different day at a different time who comes up to me and starts talking about Jesus and who's a Christian who's interested in the Catholic faith. And I'm like, okay. This is why God wants me here. So I still meet with this person probably once every two to three months because he's someone, I believe, that he thinks he can trust because he knows where I came from and he knows I'm not making anything up and he knows that I'm not doing it because I got some sort of degree or because I studied hard enough to, to get to the truth. Left to my own devices, I actually went to completely falsehood. <laughs> so everything, ev anything that I quote-unquote no, really anything I believe, God has kind of shown me through the grace of God that the fullness of divine revelation is in the Catholic Church, which is really a blessing. I tell people, Catholics are, you know, they have the golden ticket, like, what's that show, Willy Wonka? But they don't know it. <laughs> you know, we, gotta, we have to let more people know, like, the blessings of the sacraments and of confession and of the Eucharist, we've got it. You know, God, you go to confession and God forgives your sins for all of eternity, it's like, sign me up. You know, we, you have to let people know about this. But I started, I started to pray that prayer more, more, more. Lord, I pray that you might use me to evangelize people. And I remember I was in a Costco a couple weeks later, and this person I'd seen in the same spot about a week prior at a different time comes up to me, and we start talking about Jesus again. And he's someone dealing with demonic problems. So God was literally, in his humility, bringing people to me. He wasn't requiring me to act or me to do anything, but he was using me as a tool to tell people about what, what had happened to me. And it's been such a blessing. Um, but, um, you know, and 
obviously there's so much that happens, but probably the biggest plus, has anyone here ever been on a charismatic retreat? Have you guys heard of the charismatic renewal in the Catholic Church? Where the, you can be what's called baptized in the Spirit. So there's a baptism by water and a baptism by fire where God descends and you know activates the spiritual gifts that we all have by our baptism and gives you the activation of your apostolic mission of evangelization. So, you know, it's so humbling because God can speak through any person at any time. And somehow, by the grace of God, I knew this. And I was in an adoration chapel very early on in my conversion. And there was a person there breathing heavy. <sighs> you know, they're dealing with demonic problems. They couldn't even sit in adoration. They're dealing with stuff that's so bad. I think it was drug addiction for many years. And he comes up to me and he says to me, he looks me dead in the face and he says, if you don't go on a charismatic retreat, you never will. And here I am talking to this person who might be demonically obsessed. And I just knew that God was speaking through this person to me at that specific moment in time. And I go on Facebook the next day and Father Ben, who's a really anointed priest from Orange County, he's a great guy, he had posted a flyer. I never go to his Facebook page. I just thought, I'm just going to go to Father Ben's Facebook page. I didn't know the Holy Spirit was kind of prompting these things to do. And I see this flyer the next morning for a charismatic retreat hosted by Father Ben in Big Bear about a three or four hour drive away. And I thought, okay, God wants me to go to this retreat. And I show up at this retreat not knowing anything about what I'm doing or I'm praying for. Me and a friend of mine are praying the rosary and we're praying fervently for all of the spiritual gifts. <laughs> we're praying, Lord, I want by location. I want, you know, the gift of tongues. I want all these. We have no idea what we're doing, right? But I, I just remember... God really blessed that period of time, and I felt a supernatural peace. If you read Acts, it talks about being drunk in the spirit, where it was 9 a.m., so they weren't drunk on alcohol, is what Peter says, almost half musingly. But it was just being completely drunk in the spirit, having the supernatural joy and peace that I hadn't had for a very long time. And I remember leaving that place knowing that God is real, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are real, the gifts of prophecy, the gifts of healing, all these things you read about in the Bible, these are real. And a good father gives good gifts to his children if you ask. And so I think the sad thing is that not a lot of people really ask for this or desire it because the purpose of the gifts is for evangelization that other people might come to faith who don't have it. When God heals a person miraculously, that person's going to believe God is real. Like that's that's kind of the purpose of it. So God has really blessed my life, um, saved me so many times from the own decisions that I made. And I work, I work for Deacon Steve, um, who's the director of evangelization in Orange County. I work in a young adult ministry called Dunamis, where we operate in the apostolic mission of the church for evangelization. We do prayer ministry. We do street evangelization and things of that sort. But I wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about kind of God's journey for me. has kind of been a journey in prayer. And I guess if, if you had asked me years ago, what hypothetically, Matt, do you think is the most boring profession that you could possibly pick if you what is like in dead last place i would have said probably to be a priest or to be a hermit and just be praying all day but god in his sense of humor every time i say god i'm not going to be on instagram he's like okay you're on instagram for the young adult ministry now god i think prayer is boring he's like okay you're going to be praying all day now but not not really but but it is kind of humorous how god has worked in my life where every single thing i've thought oh i'll never do that i'll never get involved in that that's boring that's quotidian. That's, that's not interesting. That's not dynamic. God has humbled me to show me like, wow, prayer can be a really powerful journey. You read about the mysticism of the church. I mean, the Catholic church and the, the stories of the saints, the mysticism of the saints is really what it is. It's a call to adventure. People don't, people don't really see it that way because it seems boring. It seems like you're just sitting in this room, quiet, and Jesus might speak to you, but probably not because he's too busy helping out everyone else in the world, but he might speak to you. And people view it kind of in that negative lens that it's just this boring, quiet time. But of everything I've been through, the most wildest, most worthwhile journey that God has put me on has been the journey of prayer. So I wanted to kind of share with you some things that have happened with that. So if I had to summarize kind of what prayer is, or at least kind of, at least the way God's been speaking to me about prayer. I would say that prayer is a journey in learning to surrender to the will of God in complete trust and childlike confidence that God's will is for our ultimate good. And that, that complete surrender is very hard. You see, you see people who've 
done it radically like St. Paul did it. The, the radical surrender to God's will that everything God asked of him, I believe, I don't know, it seems like from reading the New Testament that he did. You read about some of the saints, but that's really what the journey in prayer is. It's a journey to completely trust, almost like a child, almost in the way that actually the world would see as juvenile. There was a priest, Mark Mary, from the CFRs, the Franciscans. I visited them a couple weeks ago because I was discerning with them. And he said that the world would view childlike faith and confidence in God almost to be juvenile, in the sense that someone is standing with their arms outstretched like this and their eyes closed, that their father is going to pick them up and is going to come home and is going to save them. And the world would look at that like, oh, you're crazy. You're insane. You've got to, you've got to do something. You've got to solve your own problems. You've got to act. But God does call us to that radical childlike confidence. And you read, I mean, this is, it's everywhere in the Bible. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Philippians 4, 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, nor about your body, what you shall put on. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Matthew 6.25. God, God says numerous times to be anxious about nothing and to completely trust Him in prayer. And then we get to this place of saying, Lord, I want to completely trust You. I'm just too weak to do it. You know, that's, that's kind of the journey in prayer where God continues to refine your faith and to give you the strength to surrender more and more and more. But praying, I wanted to go over kind of like my trajectory in prayer and feel, feel out the room of you guys can relate to any of this. So my prayer started for, I'll say, praying for what I think I want. Can anyone relate to this way of prayer? Yeah? Praying, praying for what you think you want. I was praying for a long time about, Lord, I want to be fully healed of all these kind of residual problems I have. I want to be operating radically in the mission of the church. I want to be going out. I want to be filled with joy. I want to be the poster child of success. Like all these things that I thought, yes, this is what I want. This is what will do the most for God. And God's like, whoa, slow down. <laughs> the big thing I was praying for in the beginning, God, you know, he makes us all make sacrifices. For many years, I had been, to be honest, probably addicted to exercise. I mean, I exercised for two to three hours a day, 40 or 50 pounds ago when I played sports. So I look, I look very different than I do now, but it was a legitimate, I would say, addiction. It was kind of a, a coping mechanism, you could say, something I relied on. And I remember when, when I had my conversion, every time I would go to exercise, I would get demonic attacks that night. And I'm furious with God for about a month. I'm like, you took away the one thing that I like to do, the one thing that gives me peace, the one thing that I enjoy doing. You've taken that away. But over time, I've seen that God's will has been for the greater good, and he's been doing a greater good through it. But the most major thing I think I took away from that was I had this kind of performance mentality in prayer. Can anyone kind of relate to that where you think that if you just pray harder, if you just pray in the right way, that God is going to answer your prayers in the most perfect way, but if you have to do it in just the right way to please Him. Does, any, does that resonate with anyone in here? Yeah? So I was doing that for a long time, thinking if I just pray harder, if I just get on my knees longer, if I just focus harder on God, He'll answer every one of my prayers perfectly. Not realizing that's making myself into my own God. That's what that's doing. So God started to give me these dreams at night where I'm on this stage back in my high school years, and I'm in this drama, I'm in this play, and I'm leading the whole play. And the script reads deliverance prayers, and I'm running around, and I'm, giving, I'm handing them out. I'm like, quick, take, take these. The play's about to start. We all need to have our lines perfectly. Like We need to know every prayer. We need to know how to pray it. Like There's going to be a lot of people here to watch this play. And I'd wake up from those dreams, oh, with a throbbing headache every single time. And God was trying to tell me, you're trying to perform in prayer. This isn't a performance. This is a relationship. I'm, I'm your father. You're my son. You don't need to perform for me to love you. I just do. What, what you do is you respond to that. It's a response. It's kind of a change in posture. But for a long time, there was this performance mentality I had where I just thought, if I just keep praying for longer and harder and in the right way with the right technique, you know, it's been hard to kind of for God to almost rip out my engineering brain and replace it with something completely different where I'm no longer trying to manipulate God into trying to get him to do what I want. But for a very long time, I had this performance mentality. 
he continued to give me dreams where I'd be taking a test. I'd be taking a test at night, and I knew all the answers. And there are all these prayers, and I'm furiously writing, and I'm thinking, this is great. I have more time on the test. I can, I can even write more. I can just keep writing. And then I wake up, oh, with a throbbing headache again and again and again. And God's saying, you're still trying to perform in prayer. You're still trying to control me. You're still trying to manipulate me. This isn't a performance. This is a relationship. The second thing that happened, I would say, was with Deacon Steve. So God had kind of put Deacon Steve in my life very, very, very early on. And I prayed to God. I said, God, do you want me with De working with Deacon Steve? Kind of in earnestness. And I got the answer, yes. And I'm thinking, oh, no, there's no way. That, that can't be God speaking because I'm dealing with so much stuff right now. I need to really care about and protect myself. And I need to go slow and I need to be in control. So I go back to adoration and I pray again, Lord, did you really say that? Do you really want me working with Deacon Steve? And I started to get words from the enemy that were like, no, it's dangerous. You're right. You shouldn't, you shouldn't venture out. You shouldn't step out in faith. But what God had said originally was he had given me this word about going to a vending machine, going to rather like a Shaw's or a store and taking recycling cans. He said, I want you to step out in faith and give me what little you have to give. And I'll give you a quarter back for every can that you bring to me. But only, he didn't say yet, God is very funny. He, never, he typically doesn't say yes or no. He says, whatever you can give me is what I'll take. Because he's asking for our faith, kind of the building of our confidence and faith. And that as we step out in faith, he grows that trust by responding to us and showing us that yes, I'm here. Yes, I'm working. Yes, I'm present in your life. But for a few months, it was all these words from the enemy. Oh, no, don't, don't do it. It's dangerous. You're going to lose your health again. You need to protect yourself and your sleep, and you need to be very orderly about what you're doing. Needless to say, I didn't really think of the fact that nothing was orderly about what happened to me for the past five months. It was actually just being like thrown into the mysticism of the church when you, re when you read about this. So I'm like, okay, I've got to take control. I've got to do this. And then God came back, and Deacon Steve stopped me in a church he was there right before I was about to leave for a conference, and he never is. And he said, God told me to tell you God doesn't say yes and then no. And that's true. When God says yes to you or God says no to you, that's his answer. It's not like he's someone who's making up his mind, thinking about it for a long time, and then going back on what he said before. God is faithful. God loves us. God tells us the truth. And as, as you begin to grow in relationship to him, you begin to realize his word is faithful. It's eternal. It's not just momentary and then it changes the next day, but it's constant. So that was a big lesson for me to realize in prayer that when God tells you something, he expects you to act in faith and to go act on it and not to keep coming back to him to be like, Lord, is that really your will? You know, questioning, doubting, things like that. The second thing of prayer, I will say, is almost like a variation on the first. Praying for what God wants for me out of a desire to please him with the thinking then he'll give me what I think I want. Does that make sense? So it's almost like now I'm like, okay, I'm taking a step in, uh, maybe a step in the right direction, right? I'm praying for what God wants me to do, but in the back of my mind I'm thinking, but if I just pray for these things that God wants me to do, he'll give me what I really want, right? But I just have to kind of play on this game with God and, and pray for him to do the things he wants me to do, but then he'll reward me and give me what I want. Needless to say, that's not, how, that's not how prayer works. The third thing was praying for God to change my heart to desire what he wants. So that, I think that's probably what I would say is, has been maybe a year ago, kind of a pivotal point in my prayer journey is praying for God to change my heart to desire what he desires, realizing that I'm actually too weak to muster up the desire on my own to desire what he wants for us. Because oftentimes people are like, you know, God wants me to do this. Or God wants me to do that, but I don't want to do it. And there's a reason. Because God wants you to come to him, I believe, in humility to ask him to give you the desire to do the things that he wants for you to do. So that was really the third part of prayer for me. And to see kind of the sacrifices he had been asking me to make with spiritual eyes. And to see with spiritual eyes the cross of transformation that he had given me. And it was just it was a pivotal point where I began to pray to desire to want to do the things that God had been pointing me to do. And slowly, over a long period of time, I noticed that I gradually wanted more and more and more 
to do the things that God wanted me to do. The fourth thing, praying from a place of effortfulness to shift my focus onto prayer. How many people here feel like prayer is like an effortful thing? That you've got to put a lot of like effort and intention into it in order to get God to respond to you. You feel that way? Yeah? So I went, I went through this period of time where I thought, okay, if I just focus harder, right, on what God wants for me, then my prayers will be answered. Kind of coming from this place of effort, like it's, but it's almost like thinking like it's my doing that's going to change God's mind or it's going to accelerate this process or it's going to get him to act faster. It was entirely unsustainable. Um, on days I'd miss a day of prayer, my night was just an absolute disaster because the enemy knew that I had these beliefs that if I don't pray in a certain way, God is going to punish me. And I was feeling the weight of that lie because that's, that's how the enemy works. He's a father of lies. And if you believe things that are lies, you're going to feel the weight of them as if they were true. So this continued for a period of time. But I remember God was kind of beginning to work even through... What happens is, is like as you begin to pray and as you begin to try to learn how to pray, God always meets you every single time where you are. And he began to give me these dreams of real consolation. And I remember the one dream he gave me, any, all of you I assume have heard about union with God, like that term, right? And I was wrestling for a long time with this term. It seemed strange to me. I'm like, what does that even mean? And he gave me this beautiful dream where I saw these two lines, one kind of in the upper left corner of my mindscape and one in the lower left going towards one another and they intersected so they became one line. They literally became the same object. In other words, they're the same. Union with God in heaven is where we become God through participation of divine grace. That's in the catechism. That's not me just saying that. But I had this dream and I knew instantly what it meant that God was saying that heaven is union with God and that's where God and man become literally one indistinguishable object. You take two lines and they intersect one another perfectly, it's the same line. But he showed me, I remember he showed me that if the lines deviate even a little bit from one another as they're on the way towards one another, they don't intersect. That heaven, you know, little purgatory time maybe. But that the goal is union with God, that perfect alignment, that perfect intersection with God's will and God's grace for your life. So God was still blessing this time. I think that's important. God was blessing this time of prayer, even though I was... Not, it's not fair to say I was doing it wrong. You can't pray wrong, but I was not maybe doing it in the way God wanted me to do it, but I was kind of learning through this process of the way God wanted me to pray. The most major thing I want to talk about is praying for God to tell me the truth about what he actually desires for me, what his character is, and what his will is for my life, and facing the lies that I had believed in my life and allowing him to replace them with the truth. Has anyone here ever heard of a ministry called TPM, Transformative Prayer Model? No? So it was made by a Baptist minister, but it's been adapted by the Catholic Church and it's the Catholics and it's theologically correct, you could say. But the idea is that a lot of people, I would say, without knowing it, many, 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 many people going through deliverance problems are dealing with the fact that they believe lies not in here but in here in their heart, about themselves, about God, and about their family. And the prayer model is very simple. You begin to realize that, well, at least I have begun through the grace of God to realize that I can't fix myself, I can't believe hard enough in God, I can't have enough faith, but that God is the one who needs to give me faith. And if you read John, he says the truth will set you free, but what, what that has meant in my life is when God tells you something, you believe it, not just in your head, but in your heart. So I began, to, I began to pray to God about all these lies I had believed. There was this really funny, it's not really funny, there's a funny story when I was living in Chicago. I was so mad about my situation, and I was a bit stronger than I am now, so I had the capability to do this, I promise you. But I was furious, and I'm in my apartment alone, I left my phone by my desk, and I'm going to this closet area, and I slam the door I almost said wicked hard. I'm from Boston. I almost said, I slam the door so hard that it locks from the inside, okay? And I felt the weight of this darkness. I didn't know what it was come over me, and the lights were off, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm locked in this room. I could literally die in here. <laughs> and it, it just occurred to me that I could literally die in there. And I remember at the time, I had to bang the door down to get to get out of the room. 
And it was an adrenaline-infused situation, to say the least, because I wasn't living with anyone. I didn't have my phone. I was banging on the walls, and no one was answering the apartment. But God was just waiting for me to cry out to him to ask for some help. You know, being in yet another situation which I couldn't get myself out of without hurting myself. So I, I adapted this prayer model. I encourage you guys to try it if you're dealing with anything that seems to hang on to you in your life. I said, God... When I was in that room, you know, what is, what is the lie that I believed at that time to make me feel like you weren't present, to make me feel that fear and that anxiety? And he told me, he said, if you had just confessed your sins in that room, he showed me this image, I would have made you as small as a fly in humility, and you would have crawled right underneath that door and gotten out. And that's one thing to say, but when God says it to you in prayer, you believe him. You believe. It changes, it changes your belief, not in your head, but in your heart. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm literally free from this memory. I'm literally free from thinking God wasn't present in my life because God told me. When God tells you something, you believe it because he's God, because he has authority and because you trust him. So that, of all the things I've done in prayer, if anyone is dealing with serious trauma, things that have affected them psychologically, from their past, from their relationships, whatever it is, turning to God, to point out the lies that you believe that make you feel a certain way now, even years after that event, and then praying to him to fill you with the truth in place of those lies can heal your mind, but most importantly heals your heart because it puts in you the faith that you can completely trust God with all of your problems. And really, of all the things I've done in prayer, having God tell me the truth has set me free from all the lies of the enemy that God wasn't present, God doesn't love you, God would have abandoned you, you would have died if you hadn't had the strength <laughs> to, to bang that door down on your, on your own merit. So that was probably the most major thing. But the other thing I want to say is that sometimes God can allow, you could say, irritations from the enemy to point out false beliefs that you have. I was with um, the Marian Fathers. If people know, who knows Father Don Calloway? Do any of you guys know? Yeah, you know? So he's pretty famous. He was at St. John the Baptist two years ago for the St. Joseph consecration. And he's a great and holy priest. He's also just a super cool dude. Very like down to earth. Loves to surf and talk about surfing. Uh, I was in his car for a period of time. It's the highlight of my life. No. Um, but he was, he was just a very cool guy. But I remember when I was visiting those priests, I was so exhausted, so tired from the plane ride and everything else. I didn't have time to pray for prayers of protection for myself. So I just conk out and fall asleep. And lo and behold, something comes around and starts poking me in the back of the head. I'm half awake and half asleep. And I'm just snoring and I'm like, you know what? I'm not gonna I'm not even gonna get anxious about it. I just start praying, you know, precious blood of Jesus Christ, save us in the whole world. Kind of almost like half asleep. And it gets so irritated that I'm not anxious about it and that I trust God to protect me without fervently praying from this place of performance to be protected, it pushes my head and goes away. And I wake up from that dream going, oh my gosh, the only reason this stuff has bothered me at all is because I've been anxious about it bothering me. Because I believe that it could. But when you're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, you're saved, you're made a new creation, this stuff can't do anything to you. But you have to believe that, though. That belief comes through sometimes suffering, through, through experience, but it comes through trusting God, through the trial, and God shows you the truth. And when he shows you that truth, you never turn back. I never go back and say, oh, I need to pray for protection tonight or else my night is going to be really bad. It's like, God's got me. But it's only because he's shown me that and convicted my heart of that truth. So that has been kind of a major thing, praying from a place of God, filling my heart and my mind with the truth, praying more daily for my heart for God's will to be done. Um, and the most major thing I've recently fallen into, you know, because the, these things are patterns. Prayer is kind of dynamic. It evolves over time trying to do the transformation of what God is bringing about in his timing. How many people have a problem here that they go to prayer to and maybe subconsciously or consciously they're trying to fix the problem themselves that they have? Does that make sense? Yeah, some people are nodding their head. You, you go to prayer and you say, God, I want you to fix this. I want to surrender to your will. I want you to do it all. And then you try to do it. Without knowing that, without knowing that you're doing it most of the time, and I remember I had been uh, kind of practicing Buddhism for a couple of years and meditation and stuff like that before my conversion, obviously. 
And God gave me this dream where I started to be woken up at night again. And I had this dream where I'm wearing this Buddhist monk outfit, almost like an orange habit that they have with one sling over the shoulder. And I'm walking with this crutch in my hand. And I wake up knowing God is telling me, you're trying to do this yourself. And the crutch that you're using is you're relying on your own effort and your own ability to bring about the renewal of your mind. But you need me to do it. You can't do this unless I help you. <laughs> and so there's this kind of constant oscillation in prayer where we're learning to surrender. We're learning to trust God. But there's part of us that wants to control it, that wants to control the process and to be in control and accelerate it, accelerate the process. And that's the battle. It's in surrendering to God. So the last thing I'll say on this is I feel like I'm finally entering a place of beginning to learn how to pray. After two years of the school of hard knocks, tri trial and error in a, in a way, of realizing that what prayer is, it's submission and trust in knowing that God is God and we're us. The level of humility God requires of us is so intense that if we, if we could fathom it, we might die, I actually think. I don't know. But where God has led me is God is like the ocean and we're like a grain of sand on the beach. We're so small. And God is trying to make us God through participation in divine grace. And we have to get to this place, at least I've had to through a lot of suffering and error to realize I literally cannot do this. Like God is trying to do something that is impossible for me to do. My effort, my time spent in prayer, it doesn't mean anything. This is God's work. God is molding us. We're not molding ourselves. So that's been the biggest challenge. And what prayer is, I'm beginning to learn, it's, there's an active passivity to it. We're receiving from God, but it's a relationship. What God wants in prayer is relational. And after many years, two years, now of trying to manipulate God and trying to get Him to do what I think is best for me, God is saying, I'm your, fa I'm your father, you're my son, we have a relationship. I want the best for you. Do you trust me in this process? Um, and it's dynamic. And it's a type of posturing. There's a type of posturing in prayer where you're posturing yourself not to control God, but to receive what God has for you. It's, it's a posture of humility and passivity. And it's a resting and abiding in prayer. If you read about kind of the contemplative life of the church, Early on in my conversion, I was like, okay, you know, these charismatic people have it right. We need to be praying with intensity all of the time. We need to be screaming. We need to be praying for God to come down with thunder constantly. And now I'm realizing that God has worked through the Catholic Church in a mystical way. If you read in Isaiah, be still and know that I am God. That is the type of prayer God's actually calling all of us to. I would, I would say mystical prayer, union with God. He's calling us to that stillness of knowing and being convicted in our heart that He's God, He's keeping us fully safe from all spiritual evil, and He loves us infinitely, unconditionally, and eternally. And prayer being a place of really, in a way, kind of the effort to not give effort. And all these things may not make sense to you. To be honest with you, they don't really make sense to me either. So <laughs> I'm just saying kind of like what my experience has been. There's this effort we do. There's stuff that we do in prayer. But in the end, God prays through us. And if you read about the contemplative lives of the saints, they talk about the Holy Spirit praying through people to God, through the intercessions and groanings of the Spirit, because our prayers couldn't please God on our own. We literally need the Holy Spirit to pray through us in a way that's pleasing to God. So, But God loves his kids, and he loves to see them try. And I get upset sometimes because I'm like, I know you like to see me try, but this has been painful. I keep falling down on the first step. I keep stumbling. I keep hitting my head. But he loves to see his kids try. He loves to see us almost with that perseverance and endurance. But eventually he knows, St. Teresa of Lisieux talks about the contemplative life that we put our arms down in the spiritual warfare and we're taken up in the arms of the Father. And there's so much truth to that that we have to let God bring about our transformation in prayer. So as someone who knows very little about prayer, here I am talking about prayer. There was a really funny talk I went to a year ago. I was telling Father Glenn, um, at the retreat center, that there's, there was a nun at the Santiago retreat center a year ago, and she was giving a talk on prayer, and she'd been praying contemplatively for probably 40 years. And she said, um, you know, as someone who knows absolutely nothing about prayer, I'm here to talk to you today about prayer. And she prayed for a week straight, Lord, give me just a word. 
a word to share with them. And he was building her patience and endurance after a week, just dead silence. She goes, Lord, just a word. Just a word. <laughs> Could you imagine just sitting all week just waiting for one word? Just one word. <laughs> and God comes down and tells her, sacred space. That prayer is a sacred space of relationship with God. So if I leave you with anything, I hope you, I leave you with that. And I hope, I hope this has been worthwhile. Um, I'm happy to offer prayer for you for the little bit I'm here. And those of us who want to are part of the ministry will as well. But God bless you all. Thank you for listening to me talk. And uh, God bless. To start the, just the, the Q&A here. So regarding um, surrendering to the Spirit. You mentioned about the passage in Isaiah, be still and know that I am God. kind of came to me as well is usually in prayer, usually I would try to find where my distractions are, kind of eliminating them, kind of like, kind of those space invaders kind of thing, you know, like where, where they are and kind of taking them down. But instead of being still and letting God find me in that space, what would be the basic forms on how to be in a surrendering posture when that's you start a, That's praying? a really good question. So there are a couple of things with that. Because that's something I've dealt with a lot, I would say, over the past year. The most major thing I would say is that if in prayer, emotional things start to come up in prayer, that's not random. Like God actually may be drawing your attention to something. So you have to kind of, you, you learn to discern what's a distraction and what's not, and what God might be kind of bringing to the surface in prayer. And the biggest thing is in allowing those things that aren't distractions to surface in prayer and actually to turn to God with them and to allow them to take place has been kind of transformational for me. And to see, Lord, is there any lie that I believe that's leading to me to feel what I'm feeling right now? What do you want to show me? What do you want to tell me about it? God is the teacher and we're the student. We don't, some, we don't know ourselves in the same way God knows us intimately. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is I read a book by... Um, Blanking on its name, but it's a book called The Mindful Catholic. So I, I was a Buddhist for many years, and I was way, I was like very much veering away, no mindfulness, none of this. It's associated with Buddhism and Eastern religion, and basically demonic religion was kind of the conclusion I came to, which is true because you know there there are things in Buddhism that aren't of God, but there's a way to do mindfulness correctly. There's a book called The Mindful Catholic, where basically this Catholic author who's a PhD psychologist kind of steps through how mindfulness as an exercise is a way to exercise your focus and is a way to kind of exercise that focus muscle that you might use in prayer. So something that has been helpful for me has been to kind of allow these things to take place and if they are distractions, to maybe pay attention to them for a while and let them go away, kind of as a mindful practice. But it's a really good book. I recommend it called The Mindful Catholic because there's a way to do it correctly in prayer, to be present. To what's happening to you yeah all right so I'm an older guy I'm a dad three children go off to college they lose their Catholic faith what can we do you kind of going through that process I mean you didn't like going to church from the beginning but what can we do to help keep our children or for all of you here younger siblings Catholic in college that's a really good question as someone who didn't have faith at all. It's kind of funny with Katrin here, but I would say to have a Catholic community where you go to school is probably, in my opinion, one of the most critical things you can do. So where I went to school, they had something called the St. Thomas Aquinas Society, which I wanted to have nothing to do with at the time. And my mother kept pressing me, go there, you'll meet a nice girl, like all these things. And I'm thinking, no, I don't want to do that. But I think in retrospect, that would have been a critical thing to keep my faith to be surrounded with people who elevate me and who don't bring me down because people are either going to bring you down or bring you up it's one or the other so I think having that would be critical I think that definitely probably the most important thing is not being a parent formation in the home before they leave school too for them to be convicted intellectually most importantly in their heart but also intellectually that this is true when professors come at them with counter arguments for why maybe it's not but for them to believe the truth in their mind and in their heart, I would say. Just really quick, on that subject matter, there's a great book called Always a Catholic, written by Father Sebastian Walsh, who's a Norbertine at St. Michael's Abbey. Um, you can get it at shop.catholic.com. So an another question for you um, regarding, I guess, the, the both sides of, I think Pope Francis actually mentioned this in one of his letters, is the Neo-Pelagianism and then the Neo-Gnostic side which is almost that uh, there is this, the both extremes, one is almost like a liturgy vigilante, 
And then there's one that is the lack of form. So in those spaces, which is most of the time in online or social media spaces, how do we either, do we need to evangelize those? How would we even kind of uh, navigate that space? I think there's some sort of spiritual warfare happening there as well. It's not just like the Exorcist movie, something like that, but having these two camps of the oh. same, pretty much of the same family, both brothers and sisters in Christ, but this is happening. So what are kind of subtle things that we can avoid or at least from, from your experience if you've ever run into those. So are you saying like how can we bring these two spaces kind of together? Yes. And that's a good question. So I remember because unexpectedly my conversion was through the charismatic renewal, which is not, nothing I ever would have expected. But God has kind of shown me that he knows me better than I know myself. And I was discerning with the Norbertine priests for a period of time, talking to them about the charismatic renewal and without naming any names, they said something that's actually true. Like what they said is actually true. They said, the priest I was talking to said, you know, guitar masses are great and all this stuff, but at the end of the day, it's about the Eucharist. It's about the reverence of the Eucharist. So I think that's true, though. I think that there's space for both spirituality, but I think there needs to be an agreement about what's fundamental. That the fundamental, the sacraments, that's what's fundamental to the church, and we need to stick to that. And then there's kind of a spectrum of spirituality around that, where you have charismatic masses and charismatic priests, and then you have the high vertical reverence at the places like St. Michael's Abbey. But I think there needs to be agreement about what is the foundation of our faith, you know, and where does that come from? So yep. if there's no other questions, thank you very much, Matt, for being here. And if you have any questions, make sure to reach out to him.